Please turn with me in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6, we'll be looking at verse 53 through chapter 7, verse 23 this morning. We left off last week with Jesus getting into the boat with his disciples after walking halfway across the Sea of Galilee on the water. The fierce wind keeping the disciples from making much headway instantly ceased. The disciples, of course, were utterly astounded and still having a hard time understanding who exactly Jesus really was. Today, we find out what happened when the boat came to their destination at Gennesaret, a city only a couple of miles southwest of Capernaum and also on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark 6, verse 53 through chapter 7, 23. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die but you say if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained from me is corbin that is given to god then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of god by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do 
And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it didn't take long for Jesus to be recognized when they got to Gennesaret, did it? And the masses began to gather the sick and bring them to him, and Jesus shows great compassion to these people and allows them to be healed as they only touch the fringe of his garment. And why is this so remarkable? Well, it's not because they were healed when they touched Jesus' garment. They probably heard the story about the woman earlier that was healed this way. Back in chapter 529, Mark wrote about her. But this is remarkable because most of these people were using Jesus for their own ends. Like the 5,000 plus who were fed earlier wanted to use Jesus by trying to make him king so that they could get out from under the rule of Rome, so that he could minister to their physical needs, so that they could see him do miracles. And also, like so many people today who look to God only for what they want and care nothing about what God wants. The sad fact is that most of this crowd would have very little to do with Jesus after he healed them which we will find out. So the main point of these four verses at the end of chapter 6 is not the faith of the people touching the garment, but rather the power and the love of Christ, as we've already seen so many places in Mark. The power and love and compassion of Christ for people who really had questionable motives. So now as we venture into chapter 7, we see another conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus directly addresses. And he uses to teach one of the most important and fundamental truths of the whole Bible. Really, we could say, we could label this how easy it is to miss the whole point of Scripture when the focus is on 
the traditions of men. One of the things this exchange between the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus graphically demonstrates is the truth of a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verse 8. It's very familiar. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And so much of what Jesus says seems to cut right through misunderstanding and wayward thoughts, but what he says to these pharaohs and scribes in verses 1 through 13 is much like hitting them with a high-voltage stun gun. The big picture here is that Jesus uses this episode to give perspective of what true worship really is. And this also means that we find out how different true worship is from mankind's kind of worship. Remember that Jesus had already revealed the true motives and the misunderstandings of the religious leaders, so much so that back early in Mark, in chapter 3, verse 6, the religious leaders had held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus And the topic was how to destroy Jesus. That was in chapter 3. The word was out about Jesus' great power and his miracles. And this delegation of Pharisees and scribes that had been sent from Jerusalem was only there to entrap Jesus so that they could somehow get rid of him. And one of the most convincing proofs that Jesus was God in human flesh is how he takes these encounters that would scare the living daylights out of the rest of us and he turns them into opportunities to teach the truth and in this case, set the record straight as to what true righteousness and true worship are. I know I don't, I don't think most of us really understand how heated and how organized this attack was against Jesus and how strong it was becoming. The reason the reaction by these religious leaders was beginning to be so heated and organized was because they recognized that Jesus was attacking, attacking the very core of their own belief system. And they did not like it. They must have recognized that Jesus was attacking them this way, but they certainly did not make the connections that Jesus was making very clear for everybody else to see. When our pride is built of false pretenses, and when our self-righteousness had established its own right to rule and judge and look down on other people, only the Spirit of God, through His Holy Word, can knock down these kind of walls. Only the Holy Spirit. And yet, even most of the other people who heard these confrontations 
they weren't awakened either to their selfish, nearsightedness about who Christ was. They still saw him mainly for someone who could do stuff for them. What about the disciples? Well, we know that the Lord's own disciples had to have these things explained further. They asked Jesus to right after he said this. And even then, they didn't really get it fully, and they wouldn't really get it fully to after the resurrection. But bit by bit by bit, their eyes were being opened. So why did so few people understand what Jesus is about to make so clear? How would you answer that? There's one answer, and it's simply because the human heart is corrupted in all of its faculties. Total depravity does not mean that you and I are as sinful as we could possibly be. Rather, it means that every area of our being has been corrupted and tainted by our sinful conditions. You want a list? Our emotions are corrupted. Our thinking is corrupted. Our will or decision-making is corrupted. Our motives are corrupted. Our intentions are corrupted. In other words, every part of us is corrupted. We cannot say, I am what I am because I do what I do. But we can say, and rightly say, I do what I do because I am what I am. Jeremiah 17, 9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? John 3, 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In Titus 1, 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So why couldn't most of these religious leaders and the crowds of people understand what Jesus was teaching? 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul pretty much sums up the reason. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, did you notice the word that Paul used in his letter to Titus that I just read? The word he used to describe unbelievers was defiled. Isn't this exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes were calling Jesus' disciples? 
defiled. In verse 2, they say, the scribes and the Pharisees, they say that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled. In verse 5 of chapter 7, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? This word is used seven times in our passage today, so keep track of it. In chapter 7, verse 2, 5, twice in verse 15, 18, 20, and 23. In our verse 3 and 4, we see the explanation that the Pharisees and the scribes especially believed that unrinsed hands defiled the food and therefore who? The eater of the food. Washing one's hands before meals, interestingly, was not required by the Old Testament law in general. But it had become part of the Pharisees' teaching. And it was a primary concern to them because this kind of tradition is what they used and counted on and depended on to think that they could stand before a holy God. In other words, what were they thinking? You know, if we just keep all these details about outward cleanliness, then we'll satisfy God's commands. Well, don't miss the point here. Jesus insisted the religious leader's position was radically wrong. Notice, Jesus did not reply to the act, their accusation in verse 5 with some mild attempt to excuse his disciples. He didn't say, hey, they didn't have a chance to wash. He didn't say, we've been out hiking. He didn't say, I'm sure they'll do better next time. He didn't say, well, let's talk about such washings. Why do you think they're so important? Instead, he attacked them. He attacked their thinking. And it was forceful, and it was direct. And he attacked the Pharisees for focusing on extra-biblical matters. These were the guys who were supposed to be leading the nation of Israel in what Scripture says and requires. And Jesus is saying that they're focusing on extra-biblical things, not biblical things, and they're breaking God's law in essential matters, the things that do matter, by these very traditions. He said their entire understanding of religion was wrong. And he quoted Isaiah 29.13 to say it. That their hearts were far from God. That their worship was vain. That they were teaching that their own 
add-on rules were the doctrines of God. And this, and that this all meant they'd really ditched God's word to make their own unbiblical traditions the final authority for everybody. Matthew even includes a few more zingers in his account that Jesus gave. That they were plants that his heavenly father had not planted. What does that imply? It's implying that these Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, were plants of Satan. And so would be rooted up he says rooted up in Matthew, destroyed by fire at the last judgment. And that they were blind guides leading blind men to destruction. So, the Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the tradition of elders But Jesus then used Isaiah 29, verse 13, to respond to them by accusing them of breaking God's commands because of their traditions. Let that sink in just a second. Their whole society and culture was based on these things. This was revolutionary. It's revolutionary for everyone, including us, but especially in this culture. Now, in verses 9 through 13, Jesus uses what we could describe as a despicable practice of the Pharisees to provide a really perfect example of this problem, of them actually breaking God's commands because of their traditions. Starting in verse 9 and reading through verse 13, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. In other words, Jesus is not merely saying, if I'm guilty, then you're guilty too. You know, you said, I'm guilty because my disciples are whatever. I'm not just saying, hey, you're guilty too, so it's no big deal. What he's doing is he's going really deep now, much deeper, so that the distinction can be made that he, Jesus, is not guilty of anything, but they are guilty of much. Jesus uses the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments to make his point. Honoring father and mother includes a universally recognized human obligation to provide for one's parents when they are in need. The Pharisees had established a tradition 
so that they could avoid that obligation and still look righteous in the whole process. The epitome of hypocrisy. Corbin referred to a gift dedicated to God, and it worked this way. If a parent approached one of their sons asking to be helped, and they really did have a need, and the son did not want to help, all he had was to do was to say, Corbin, meaning that the money that might have been used to relieve the parent's real and justified need had been dedicated to God and so was no longer available. And what made this practice even worse was that the greedy or the uncaring son didn't even have to give the money to God. It was enough that he just promised to give it. He could give it later. He could give it on his deathbed, perhaps, or not at all. And in this way, the parents of such people were dishonored and God's law was broken. What concerned Jesus? What was it? It was that by this false righteousness, these men nullified the Bible that they thought they were upholding, making it of no effect at all, which is the problem with traditions and what traditions almost always do. Jesus had just powerfully condemned the people in Israel who were regarded as the best people of their day. I don't know if you can picture that. But the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that everybody moved over for when they walked down the street. The scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that people gave up their seats for in special occasions. The scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who were respected, quote, unquote. I've got a feeling that as Jesus made these particular pronouncements, that respected word had more quotes around it than the scribes and the Pharisees ever realized. It was all what people saw, the pretense in it. Was this a just and necessary condemnation? Because a love of tradition more than a genuine love of God does always lead to false religion and self-righteousness. And that was the chief characteristic of these guys. Self-righteousness cannot bring a person into heaven but it does lead to judgment and condemnation because the only possible basis for our justification before God is whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. And that is not dawning anywhere in the Pharisees' mindset. Christ's righteousness, not our own. Then in verses 14 through 23, Jesus makes a statement about what defiles a person. And then he explains it clearly to his disciples. This is considered across the board as one of the most revolutionary explanations about a statement Jesus ever made. 
So after this barrage against the Pharisees and the scribes specifically, who he knew were sent from Jerusalem to catch him and try to, he, he, he knows they're after him to destroy him. He, he again calls all the people to himself. All these people, no matter what reason they were there. And he tells them in verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then we see that the disciples immediately ask Jesus about this. And we get this incredible explanation in verse 18, starting in verse 18. But first he says, then are you also without understanding? Well, what's the answer to that question? They would be saying, uh, yeah, I mean, we just saw, just think about this. We just saw you walk across half of the Sea of Galilee, scare us to death, and then get in the boat, and we were poof right there at Gennesaret. And right before that, we saw you feed 5,000 people, making food out of nothing, and we passed it out. And we still don't get it, Lord. We know you're a prophet. We know even you're the son of God. We worship you, but we, we, don't, we don't get this. How can that be? That's what they're thinking. So the Pharisees were already offended to the nth degree, but the disciples were having a hard time accepting the principle that Jesus was getting at not only who he was, but what in the world was this talking about? What are you what are you talking about about defile? That what matters first and foremost, Jesus is saying, is the spiritual over formality, the internal over the external. The reality over the shadow. Jesus is making a very strong statement that uncleanness comes from where? Inside, within, not from outside. But his disciples don't understand, so Jesus explains. You notice first he explains by dealing with what goes in. And what does he say at the last part of verse 18 and 19? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Why? Because it enters not his heart. That's the key. But his stomach and is expelled. Now, we could go off here and spend the rest of today talking about Jesus, what he just did. He declared all foods as clean. And obviously, the, the Jews that were really zeroed on this, they probably caught that part, did they? 
Peter was standing right there. Did Peter catch it? Did he? Uh, no. In fact, later, after Jesus' resurrection in Acts, when he was meeting with some Jewish people who were applying the law across the board as the reason for their righteousness, he wouldn't eat stuff that he knew had been declared as clean. And God had even given him a vision of a a sheet coming down from the sky with all sorts of food on it. And he got the message, but it was still hard to stomach. This is ingrained in them. This is hard. It enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark, very, in a, it's even in a paraphrased way, says, thus he declared all foods as clean. Now remember, Mark was writing to an audience that wasn't mainly Jewish. So throughout his gospel, he explains things about Jewish tradition, life, religion, so that his Roman readers and Greek readers would understand it better. Which means when he says that, it's, there's a very good chance that those people understood this better than the Jews themselves because they didn't really get this either. But that's not the main point. And then second, in verses 20 and 23, he explains Jesus does by dealing with what comes out. And this is one of the longest lists we see in the New Testament for evil, is it not? Which is long because we don't really believe this either. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then the zinger, the the part of the spirit, the passage that we have got to get. For from within, out of the heart, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person, period. The only people that even come close to believing this in the world we live in are Christians. You go down through this list in our day and there's an excuse for every one of these that says it's not, it didn't come from you. It was because you grew up this way, or you were in this kind of a home, or you had this kind of a job, or you had this kind of a family, or you had this kind of physical infirmity, right? Which are contributing factors. But when the pressure is on us, and it squeezes us, no matter where it comes from, what comes out, usually our mouths, but it's also actions and thoughts that are put into practice, what comes out shows what's really in here. 
that's Jesus' point. Evil thoughts are evil reasonings within yourself. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual behavior outside of the biblical marriage of one woman and one man. That's, that's the most concise I could get that from the word that's used. It's any kind that's forbidden by Scripture, or the easy way to say it, that is outside of a biblical marriage between one man and one woman. Theft, obviously stealing anything that doesn't belong to you. Murder, the intentional killing of another human being. Can we add something? Even in the womb. Adultery, sexual intercourse between a married person and anyone that person isn't married to. Coveting, an appetite for what belongs to others. Wickedness, a heart that is completely equipped to inflict evil on any person. Deceit, actually means to bait, to deceive people. Sensuality involves plunging into moral debauchery and open defiance. We used to be able to say a public opinion, but that doesn't really apply too much anymore. Envy refers to an evil eye that watches and desires another's possessions. Slander, slandering God or other people by the words you say. Pride, the sin of a self-praising person who has contempt for everyone but himself foolishness describes a person who is desensitized morally and spiritually all of these evil things come from within from our hearts and they defile a person they come out of our hearts The world that we live in characterizes most everything in in this list as worldliness, but with many of these things now in a positive light, without any shame, without any condemnation, without any thought, we're supposed to accept it. We have multitudes of churches in our day calling themselves evangelical who have just tried to Christianize worldliness. I know a lot of you haven't been to some of those places and it's hard for you to believe, but let me just give you a couple of examples. And what we're talking about is some places God is portrayed as your personal valet and one whose only purpose is to get anything you want done, done. If you're materialistic, that's okay because God can't can't wait to make you rich. If you're narcissistic, what a break, because God's obsessed with you too. If you're totally incapable of handling disappointment and loss, that's fine. God will make sure you don't have to endure these kind of problems. If you're desperate for an exciting experience to keep your motivation up, You can always count on a hyped-up preacher who gives you at least an hour of exciting worship, music, stories, lights, smoke, and all of which eerily resemble a halftime show that most of you will probably watch today. 
the bottom line is that all sin comes from your heart. And Jesus, in no uncertain terms, gets to the root of the human problem, doesn't he? We are sinful through and through, and that sinful condition on the inside shows itself as sins on the outside. Our sins, sinful hearts, are just bent towards wanting to stand on our own presumed righteousness, of which God says there is none. There is none righteous. No, not one. And even after we've been redeemed in Christ, been regenerated and given new life and new hearts, sin's presence is still known and must be fought by God's grace. And that's why so much of the New Testament is teaching and application dealing with this very issue. And yet we still drift back to wanting to stand before God on our own merit. It just grates us. It just grates us that we have to depend on Christ all the time and trust Christ all the time and call out to Christ all the time. The more this rubs us wrong, the more we need to come to grips with the sinfulness of our own nature and what God did in Christ to bring us to himself. One of the best sayings that is really in the Bible, but it, it gets said a lot of different ways, is the only way to stand before God is to be humbly on our knees in Christ. And praise be to God that Christ's perfect life and his satisfactory death appeased God's wrath towards us as sinners and made us children of God. So the necessary question is, do you stand before God with clean hands only, using the story from today? You wash them. You try hard. That's either legalism, or it's thinking that your behavior or efforts are good enough to get you by. After all, God will understand. He still loves me. Is that all you got? If yes, that means that you think you don't need an advocate or a savior. What you're saying is, you're all alone and you want to be. You'll stand before God on your own. Don't say you'll stand before God on your own record. That's called a death sentence correction. I mean, confession. You don't stand on your own record. Stand on Christ's record. Or do you come with a new clean heart because you're in Christ? If you recognize that your true need, that you, that you need a new heart, if you recognize that, you need to cry out to Christ and believe in his life and his work and repent of your sins and rebellion, and receive his gift, to trust him as the Savior and Lord that he is. You know, a, a Christian doesn't just ask Jesus to come into his heart. He receives Jesus' gift of a new heart 
and new identity as belonging to Christ. And if you know you do belong to Christ, but you've rebelled against his right to rule as Lord and King, then you have the great privilege of being able to confess this truth to him in repentance, of believing in his forgiveness paid for you by him on the cross. You can ask him to make your heart sensitive to your sin so you can learn to confess and repent sincerely and quickly as you discover more of this sin that dwells in you, that still resides in you. And in gratitude, then you can worship him in spirit and truth and abide in him and rest in him and work in him and walk in him. So today we're leaving the disciples on the path but still confused. We're leaving the Pharisees and the scribes hotter than hot. Every opportunity And they can't catch Jesus in anything because not only is he claiming to be God in human flesh, he's proving it every word. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people healed. A couple raised from the dead. There is nothing in his attesting miracles that do not point to, you guys are missing the point. Look who this is. He is your creator on your knees. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, Lord, that you sent to us who is your own son to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we thank you that as we go through, especially the gospel accounts, we see the demonstrations of Jesus' majesty, his faithfulness, his great patience, the way he deals with outright sin and accusations from your word, which he wrote. We thank you for his love that takes him to the cross for the joy, as we read for the joy of having you glorified because he is purchasing a people for himself. That we have complete, total forgiveness if we're clothed in Christ. That we can get to know you deeper and deeper in this life that seems to be so confusing in so many ways, so much of the time. Oh God, we thank you for purchasing a people for yourself and that we can be a part of the body of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? This is obviously a prayer. So would you bow your heads? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Amen. You're dismissed.